eighth chapter of the book of Mark. In those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples unto him and saith unto them, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now been with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away fasting to their own houses, they will faint by the way, for diverse of them came from far. And his disciples answered him, From whence can a man satisfy these men with bread here in the wilderness? And he asked them, How many loaves have ye? And they said, Seven. And he commanded the people to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and gave thanks and break and gave to his disciples to set before them. And they did set them before the people. And they had a few small fishes, and he blessed and commanded to set them also before them. So they did eat and were filled. And they took up of the broken meat that was left seven baskets. And they that had eaten were about four thousand, and he sent them away. And straightway he entered into a ship with his disciples, and came into the parts of Dalmanutha. And the Pharisees came forth and began to question with him, seeking of him a sign from heaven, tempting him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit, and saith, Why doth this generation seek after a sign? Verily I say unto you, there shall be no sign given unto this generation. And he left them, and entering into the ship again, departed to the other side. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread, neither had they in the ship with them more than one loaf. And he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, and of the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have no bread. And when Jesus knew it, he saith unto them, Why reason ye because you have no bread? Perceive ye not yet, neither understand. Have ye in your heart yet hardened? Having eyes, see ye not? And having ears, hear ye not? And do you not remember? When I break the five loaves among the five thousand, how many baskets full of fragments took ye up? They say unto him, Twelve. And when the seven among four thousand, how many baskets full of fragments took ye up? And they said, Seven. And he said unto them, How is it that ye do not understand? And he cometh to Bethsaida, and they bring a blind man unto him, and besought him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand, and led him out of the town. And when he had spit in his eyes, and put his hands upon him, he asked him if he saw aught. And he looked up and said, I see men as trees walking. After that he put his hands again upon his eyes, and made him look up. And he was restored, and saw every man clearly. And he sent him away to his house, saying, Neither go into the town, nor tell it to any in the town. And when Jesus went out, excuse me, and Jesus went out and his disciples in the towns of Caesarea Philippi, and by the way he asked his disciples, saying unto them, Whom do men say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But some say, Elias, and others, one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Peter answered and said unto him, Thou art the Christ. And he charged them that they should tell no man of him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he spake that saying openly, and Peter took him and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men." And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross, and follow me. 
For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospel's, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and my words in this generation, adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let's look back, I mean a lot obviously in this chapter, let's look back just at a very important question, verses 27, beginning in verse 27. And Jesus went out and his disciples into the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And by the way, he asked his disciples, saying unto them, Whom do men say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But some say Elias, and others one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Peter answered and saith unto him, Thou art the Christ. Well, there Christ is asking you the most important question you'll ever be asked. Who do you say that I am? See, your eternal destiny, where you go uh, for eternity, hangs upon your answer to that one question. And the only source of that, the answer to that question is found here in the Bible. So by your answer, you're in agreement with the Bible or you're not in agreement with the Bible. It's two choices. Please turn to Romans, which we just read fortuitously, God's providence, chapter 10, verse 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Notice what it requires you to believe in order to be saved that God has raised Christ from the dead. It's not just saying believe in Jesus as your Savior, although that's important. It's not just saying believe that Jesus did the miracles. That's important. But it says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. So belief in the resurrection is central to salvation. You can't be saved without believing in the resurrection, that Christ actually rose from the dead. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. <clears throat> Beginning in verse 12. Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? Because there were people who said there weren't. They were called Sadducees. They were Jews, but they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain." Ye are yet in your sins, then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished 
if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept? For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterwards they that are Christ at their coming. See, witnessing that fails to place the resurrection front and center is simply not biblical witnessing. Telling somebody they need to ask Jesus into their heart, or telling them what wonderful things Jesus has done for you, or that they need to accept him as their Savior without telling him they must believe that Christ raised him from the dead, is a false witness. But in order to believe that Christ raised him for an incomplete witness, put it that way, in order to believe that God raised Christ from the dead, we first have to know, well, who, who is God? Simple question. Well, yeah, everybody knows who God is. Do they? I mean, you go out in the street and ask people who God is, you ask 100 people, you'll probably get 98 different answers. Uh, they, a lot of people want to define the word God to make it fit what they want God to be then they'll believe in that God. And you can know people who believe that because they all have some kind of a catchphrase. And it always begins with these words, I can't believe in a God who, or my God would never. (coughs) And then they finish the sentence with some of the worst things they can think of. Well, I can't believe in a God who would allow little babies to die. I can't believe in a God who would allow my child to die. I can't believe in a God who would allow a typhoon to kill hundreds of thousands of people. I can't believe in a God who would allow 9-11. Just, I can't believe in a God who would send anybody to hell forever. See, they've decided how God should think and how God should act. And if the God of the Bible is the different from the God of their imagination, well, they're not going to believe in the God of the Bible. They're going to believe in the God of their imagination. Uh, I once had a conversation... Uh, with a friend who said she didn't believe in miracles because how can miracles happen because the laws of nature are fixed? So God, God, you know, that's she believed that God is controlled by the laws of nature and not the other way around. They were stronger than he is, so miracles must be impossible. She had been taught that God is a prisoner of his own laws. She was following an imaginary God, a non-existent God. So why would people want to make up their own God? Why not believe in the God of the Bible? Well, for the same reason people deny that there is a real hell. The bottom line is they want to do anything they feel like doing. And if the God of the Bible isn't real, then the Bible isn't true, and therefore sin isn't true, and hell isn't true either. So... It's easy for somebody who's perishing to convince themselves the Bible is a lie and they can make up their own God that does what they want to do and tells them that everything they do is fine. See, if they, help, if they need help being convinced that the Bible is a lie, there are plenty of books. You can go on the Internet and look up all sorts of websites. They'll tell you why the Bible isn't true and the so-called contradictions in the Bible and it's a fantasy and there are movies and TV shows that will tell them it's all fairy tales or twist the Bible around and... Uh, make it say what it doesn't say. 
But if the God of the Bible is the only God there is, as he says in the Bible that he is, if he actually exists, then he's independent of us, and therefore what we imagine God should be like doesn't matter. God will think and do what God wants to think and do. And if you want to have a fantasy God, well, what you're doing is trying to convince yourself that hell isn't real, and therefore you're not going to go there no matter what you do. So having an imaginary God is like having an imaginary friend, and it's about as mature. Uh, sadly, a lot of churches today are full of teachings about imaginary gods. Um, some churches teach that God never sends anybody to hell. Or if he does, it's only probationary and they can get out later. Some teach that uh, God will let you into heaven if you've done more good things than bad things. You know, He has this giant balance scale and he puts everything on all the good things and the bad things and then if it balances out, you get into heaven. That's very common. That's what a a lot of people believe it's a gospel. It's not, of course. Uh, you only get into heaven if you, as Scripture says, uh, believe in your heart that God raised Christ from the dead and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Uh, some churches even teach that Jesus sinned. Uh, some others teach it's not important whether he actually lived and died. Yeah, they call themselves Christian churches, and they say, well, it's not really important whether Christ lived and died. It's your experience with the Christ, uh, or whether the resurrection actually happened. But the Bible doesn't allow you to believe any of that. I was on a radio program once with a, uh, I, was, I hosted a radio program, a talk show years ago, and I had a professor, seminary professor on, uh, and I wasn't really that strong a professing Christian. I was just getting into it, just kind of understanding things, but I'd been raised uh, in the Roman Catholic religion, so I knew something, some, something about it, and uh, I did believe that Christ had raised from what had in history had been raised from the dead. And when I talked about that, he finally said to me on the on the air, he said, "Why is it so important to you that Christ actually was resurrected? It's your, it's what, how you experience Christ now that's really important." So he didn't. He didn't know whether he believed it or not. He didn't care. He didn't think about it particularly. He didn't care whether Christ actually was resurrected from the dead or whether probably whether Christ actually lived. Or I'm sure if you asked him, did he say everything that's in the Bible? Well, you know, we, it doesn't matter whether he did or not. It's, it's how your experience of Christ that's important. Uh, what, what do you think of him in your heart? Is he in your heart? You know? And this is a common, it's called neo-orthodoxy. It's a very common a common thing in churches, even if they don't know what the word neo-orthodoxy means, uh, people believe it. You know, you believe a lot of things that uh, a philosopher or a theologian will tell you, well, you believe Platonism or Neoplatonism or whatever it is, and you've never heard of that, but it doesn't mean you don't believe it. You just, you know, you just, you do, it. You do believe it even if you don't know the word. We could spend all day citing verses about the, the reality of the resurrection, uh, Christ died, in 1 Corinthians, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose again the third day. And he was the, after that he was seen of Peter, then of the twelve. After that he was seen of above 500 brethren at once. So that's history. The Bible is talking history here. It's saying, if you don't believe me, you know, Paul's saying, if you don't believe me, go ask 500 people who saw him. 
Well, they're still living. Go and, go and ask them. So he's making an appeal to history. Uh, and he goes on. He says, after that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and after that he was seen of me also. Uh, Mark uh, 8.31, Jesus predicted his death. The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He wasn't talking about some fantasy. Uh, John 2, Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. But he spoke of the temple of his body. Uh, and we can go on and on. Uh, when, when Jesus uh, was, uh, was raised, and uh, uh, remember uh, in the garden where the angel was sitting in the, uh, the tomb, and the angel said, He's risen, he's not here. Behold the place where he laid them. It's empty. You know, they say that uh, if, you could, if you looked in the right places, you could find uh, Buddha, and he's in his grave. And you could find his bones in his grave, and you could find Muhammad's grave, and his bones are in his grave. But Jesus' grave, there's nothing there, because he's risen. He's not there. If you don't believe in the resurrection, you can't really live the Christian life the way you're supposed to, nor uh, if you try to obey his commandments with believing that he raised Christ from the dead, you'll be a Pharisee. A Pharisee is a legalist, uh, somebody who thinks you can get to heaven by doing a bunch of good things. Uh, that's a Pharisee. The Pharisees tried to obey the commandments, but they didn't know the Lord. See, Jesus said this about the Pharisees of his time, and they apply to the Pharisees of our time, the legalists. This people, in Mark 7, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Friend Jack Einstein, one of the best things I ever heard him say was, well, I didn't kill anybody today. I must be a legalist. <laughs> so to obey the commandments as a Christian and not as a Pharisee, we must know who it is we believe. Who is the Lord? What are his attributes? What is, re what is his relationship to the universe, to, to human beings, to us? In other words, knowledge is a prerequisite of faith. So many churches teach, well, you don't just kind of... You know, you know, they're anti-intellectual, they're anti, oh, you, don't, you know, you shouldn't, shouldn't think too hard about these things, and these are too difficult uh, anyway, and uh, we, just, we should just love everyone. Okay. Uh, but the Bible says knowledge is a prerequisite. Uh, you have to have knowledge in order to have faith. Uh, modern easy believism, modern evangelicalism to a large part, has adopted this neo-orthodoxy of, of Kierkegaard and was popularized by a, a, man, a theologian named Karl Barth, B-A-R-T-H. Uh, the message is just believe in Christ. Close your eyes, take a leap of faith. What you believe about Christ is not as important as your personal encounter with him. They tell people this because they believe that God is unknowable. He is so far above us, he is unknowable and that Christ is an experience. Well, the answer to that is what we read in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ is not raised, your faith is vain, you are yet in your sins. Then they which also, which are fallen asleep in Christ, are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. So there's no such thing as a difference between so-called head knowledge and so-called heart knowledge. 
It's rooted, that, that is neo-orthodox thinking, and it's rank unbelief, quite frankly. The heart in scripture, as I've said many times, usually, not every time, but usually means what we so call the mind. Uh, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, for example, well, the heart doesn't believe anything. The heart is an organ that pumps your blood. What that means is your mind. If you believe, well, where does belief come from? Your mind. So those who contrast this heart knowledge, supposedly, with head knowledge are fools, says the Lord. Proverbs 1.22, fools hate knowledge. Fools hate knowledge. You don't fall for somebody who says, oh, that's intellectualism. You've got to have heart knowledge. Forget about this head knowledge. You know, a little bit of head knowledge is nice to have, but really it's the heart knowledge that's important. The Lord says they're fools. Fools hate knowledge, Proverbs 1.22. And the Lord condemns those who, in Job 38, who darken counsel by words without knowledge. Condemns people who, quote, darken counsel by words without knowledge. Those who put down doctrine, who call it intellectualism or head knowledge as though it's inconsistent with faith, those people don't fear the Lord. Proverbs 129, for they for that they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. So he's contrasting those people, or he's, he's equating those people who do not choose knowledge. He says they do not choose the fear of the Lord because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, as we know from several times in uh, Proverbs and, uh, and uh, uh, Psalms. Um, Psalm 110, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all they that do his commandments, his praise endureth forever. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Without knowledge, there can be no faith. 1 Samuel 2 says, the Lord is a God of knowledge. Proverbs 2, 6, out of his mouth cometh knowledge and understanding. So how are the people described uh, who obeyed the Lord? How are they described in Nehemiah 10, 28, as the ones having knowledge and understanding of him? See, we're to pray for knowledge. We're not to despise knowledge. Uh, Psalm 119, verse 66, Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I have believed thy commandments. Proverbs uh, 8, verse 10 says, Receive my instruction, the Lord is saying, and not silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. The Lord is saying knowledge is better for you to have than a lot of money. Not that having a lot of money is a bad thing, but knowledge is better, far better. Uh, Proverbs 1.6, again, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now, you might think, well, what about people who are like mentally ill or uh, they're born with some deformity that they can't think and, and process? Or what about little babies who die before they can get any knowledge? Are they all going to go to hell? No, they're not. Uh, the Lord makes exceptions for those who are elect, for those who are the elect mentally ill, the elect infants and small children who die, the Lord makes exceptions for those. If you're elect, you're elect. Okay. But the normal way is without knowledge there can be no faith. If you're an adult and you don't have some mental impairment, uh, without knowledge 
there can be no faith. The Bible is a book of propositional truth. Propositions. You know, sentences that make sense. And we are called to believe them. Among these, a very quick summary of, of, of the Bible. Here's a quick summary of the Bible. The Lord God is triune. That he's one God in three persons. Uh, that's one proposition. Another proposition, he is from eternity. He never had a beginning. He never will have an end. That's another proposition. That he created time. He created everything in the universe. Created the universe in six 24-hour days. These are all propositions. That he controls whatever comes to pass solely because he wills it and owes no explanation to anyone. That he established laws for the universe and laws that every man, woman, and child is to live by, although he himself is subject to no law higher than his will. Therefore, he cannot sin. The very fact that God does something makes it good and just and perfect. That he never changes. That he sent the second person of the Trinity, his only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world to redeem his elect people. That he sent the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, into the hearts of his elect people to enable them to understand his word and to obey it. That the second person of the Trinity, Christ, rose from the dead and sits at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for his people as their mediator, as their prophet, priest, and king. That at death the souls of the elect are immediately with Christ in heaven. That he will physically return at the end of the world, this present world, to judge every person and create a new heaven and a new earth. These are all propositions that the Bible teaches, that those who receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior while living on this earth will go to heaven when they die immediately and then spend eternity in the new earth with Christ, while those who do not will spend eternity being tortured in the flames of hell. See, these are all propositions that we are called to believe from the Bible. See, when you know who the Lord is, then you can exercise the gift of faith that he gives you. And when you have that gift of faith, it pours out of you in many forms. As scripture says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, you confess him before people, you have a passion to see everyone come to Christ, a heartfelt desire to read his word, the Bible, to know him better and better, to pray, knowing that he hears your prayer and delighted to give you what is best for you, to worship him, to praise him, to thank him. These are all things that will flow out of you. You can't help it. See, there's no such thing as a believer who has a cold heart toward all these things, these outward acts of faith. Now, in some people, the passion burns hotter than others. But every child of God has a degree of fervency toward his Lord, expressed in what the Puritans called the six religious affections. The six religious affections. And they are love, or excuse me, love of God, fear of God, reverence, gratitude, submission, and devotion. Love of God, fear of God, reverence, gratitude, submission, and devotion. What they call the six religious affections. Affection is an old-fashioned word, but you can see what it means. Jonathan Edwards, the great Puritan, often many people call him the greatest American theologian, even though he lived centuries, a couple of centuries ago, Jonathan Edwards wrote, the recognition of the Lord as our God involves a constant sense of his presence, of his majesty, of his goodness, and of his providence, and of our dependence 
responsibility, and obligation. We are to have God always before our eyes, to walk and live with him, having a constant reference to his will in the conduct of our inward and outward life, recognizing continually in his hand in everything that befalls us, submitting to all his chastisements, and grateful for all his mercies. Does that describe you this morning? Do you believe with all your heart that Jesus lived on earth and he never sinned? That he died to pay the penalty for you? For your personal sins, all of them, past, present, and future? That he rose from the dead and is alive this very minute and he will come again on the last day? When you die, you'll immediately be with him? See, if you do believe this, then you will have to, as Romans says, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. You won't be able to keep it inside. So if you're weak in faith, as we all are, don't be satisfied about that. Cry to God. Always pray for more faith. A constant prayer of mine. More faith, more faith, more faith. He deserves to be trusted with such confidence as a child gives to his parent. So ask him to increase your faith. Keep your faith, jealousy, exercise it habitually. Pray to the Lord to increase it, preserve it and increase it. Never start walking according to the sight of your eyes. Don't come down from that height of simple confidence in God, but ask that you just will stay there and no longer doubt. So if you're strong in faith, ask to be stronger still. You can't have too much faith. If you're weak in faith, ask to be made strong. Who do you say that I am? Christ died, and God the Father has accepted Christ in the place of his people. And you, receiving Christ to stand in your place, shall find that your sin is put away, that his righteousness is credited to you, and that you are accepted by God. So don't worry about feeling being accepted. It's a big mistake we make. I don't feel saved. I don't feel that God loves me. Trust what God says. Remember, our feelings are corrupted by sin just as much as the rest of us, and they can't be trusted. Never once does the Bible say anything about you having to feel saved in order to be saved. Rather, the promise is that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you are saved. You are accepted by him no matter how you feel. So always remember that. In fact, you remember nothing else from this sermon. Remember that. Don't trust your feelings. The Bible says you are accepted if you believe. You confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, no matter how you might feel from one day to another or one hour to another. Who do you say that I am? Christ asks you. Who do you say that I am? Let's pray. Father, may may the third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit, lead us all to complete total trust in Christ alone. Spirit of God, send thy blessing on these poor words of mine, for Jesus' sake.